0: let's get started. If you are new around here, um, you are joining us in the middle of a conversation. So have a little bit of grace for us. Um, as you've missed about three weeks, we are in a conversation that is probably not the kind of conversation you would normally hear at a church on a Sunday morning. (laughs) So there's that. Um, And the reason why we're in this conversation is uh, over the last 2,000 years, there have been followers of Jesus who have um, talked about this journey of following Jesus in a way that is um, much like a battle. And, And much of it actually comes from, in fact, all of it really comes from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And... It's very real that there is uh, three enemies of the soul, as the ancients call it. The flesh, the world, and the devil. And so, if you're new to this place, yeah, that's what we're talking about. And I set it up at the beginning to kind of say, Keelan, can you pull me down a touch? I feel like I'm hearing myself. I don't like that. Um, If you don't like it, I definitely don't like it. All that's to say is there are uh, things in our lives that we come across that, that show up in these ways, that there's actually, a, a, in a sense, a contention that we feel in our lives. And we played off this hypothesis at the beginning that talked about um, that there are deceitful ideas that play into our disordered desires, that we have actually disordered desires in our lives that are normalized in a sinful society. And we talked about really that in the first two weeks. So I'd love for you to go back and catch up on that on our podcast. Last week, we actually brought some really heavy background to this conversation when we started talking about the spiritual backdrop of Scripture. That Jesus had the view that there was a warfare image in scripture, that there was something bigger at play happening. And the problem is for you and I as Western American, um, I guess, naturalist, materialist kind of people, we have this worldview that just says, ah, I'm just going to trust in what I can measure, what the scientific data is, what my experience is. And for most of us, we're kind of inoculated to this idea that there's something more supernatural happening. So what I asked the question last week was, do you really believe the Bible? And if you really believe what Scripture is saying, we have to adopt a new way of looking at the world, because it's all throughout Scripture. Now, today, there's something I think we're going to dive into a little bit that might be a game changer for you, It might be something that really helps you, and my encouragement for you is to um, maybe set aside... um, and 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 maybe trust that this this is the worldview of Paul, this is the worldview of Jesus, and it might lead to some more understanding for you. Jesus does this amazing miracle in Mark chap I forget what chapter. Mark's gospel. Mark chapter something. And he does this miracle where he he uses saliva and he takes his this saliva his own saliva. This is so weird. And he puts it in the eye sockets of a blind man. You remember this story? And the blind man begins to see, but not completely. Jesus asked him, can you see? And he says, I see people and they look like trees. And it's this interesting conversation that Jesus had with them. And then Jesus does it again and then the man can see completely. What I'm suggesting is there is a possibility that you and I have been touched by Jesus, we've had an encounter with Jesus, but we don't quite yet see clearly. There's a chance that we might not be seeing all that Jesus wants us to see when it comes to our world. So my prayer is that we would see more clearly. Ephesians chapter 6 is a classic example of what Paul's worldview is. And this is the passage, if you've been around scripture for a while, this is the armor of God passage. We're not going to get into the armor of God today um, because that was really a metaphor for, for Paul. Paul. Uh, we 're going to get into the background of that. listen to this chapter six verses ele- uh, ten and eleven. Finally, be strong in the Lord, Paul says, and in in His mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, a little quick background on Ephesians. This little city is Ephesus, and for paul he's writing this to the believers in Ephesus. And the believers in Ephesus are living in a city, and this city is like the economic power of Rome. Outside of Rome, Ephesus was was just like the center of economics. It was the center. There was so much trade through Ephesus. The spiritual backdrop of Ephesus is multiple gods to worship, multiple temples. Um, It was actually the dominant political center and military center outside of Rome. And so when Paul is sharing these things with the people, the church in Ephesus, he's actually using military language for a reason. And in this context, Paul is outlining outlining this, this life of faith and that there's a struggle to it. That you don't just decide to follow Jesus and... Well, you checked the box. You're good. Paul says there's actually a struggle. And there actually requires, if someone is to follow Jesus, a stand. That you actually have to take a stand. That you actually have to do something. There's a struggle there. And he says this in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And, and I think this is really prophetic. It was not only prophetic for them. Then, but it's really prophetic for us now because we live in a world that is very antagonistic. We live in a time that is becoming more and more tribal. We talked about that um, a few weeks ago. This group versus that group. If you're in this group, then you can't be a part of us. Um, we're always looking for who to blame in our, in our culture. And what Paul's saying, that there's ideas here that are to blame, not human faces to blame. That instantly, instantly know that we we like to instantly know who our enemies are, and Paul's saying it's not about people. And this is really happening for us in our time across the world. That there, that this idea that there's people that we're against and people are against us and. All this kind of stuff. And if you, and if you sign up for one, um, you know, group, then it may, makes you an enemy instantly of another group and all that. People. Paul is saying that there is different dimensions that are going on here. That it's more than just people. In fact, it's not people at all. And, 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 and here he goes. Who is it against, he says. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, Paul is actually outlining stuff that is the people of Ephesus are struggling with their situation. They're struggling with, you know, the, uh, the people in Ephesus who are against them. Remember, there was a riot in Ephesus. If you want to go back to Acts uh, chapter 17, you can see what's going on here. But it's just an upheaval in this city. Paul's saying, Your struggle is not against these people. I mean, it's easy to struggle against them because they're right in front of you and maybe they're jerks. But he says your struggle is actually against something else. It gets, it's against something that's behind what's going on here. Last week, we talked about this Old Testament thing called the divine council, And um, I can't explain, re-explain it all today. Suffice it to say that on first reading, it's weird. And I made the analogy of that Liam Neeson movie with, um, you know what I'm saying, Clash of the Titans. I don't know if you remember this. There's a group of gods and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, what scripture tells us, and this is why I ask the question, do we really believe what the Bible has to say? Ultimately, what scripture tells us is that God has done something in which he has created everything. And he's actually used, just like in Genesis 3, he used humanity, he used he used Adam and Eve to be rulers in the garden, to actually steward the garden and take care of the garden. He actually has a, a group of beings, spiritual beings, that are actually part of what Scripture calls his divine counsel. Now, if that's new to you, I get you're totally weirded out by that. But it's something in Psalm 82. It's in a bunch of other places in Scripture. We just have to, like, okay, what if this is true? What if there are other spiritual beings... Um, that we can't see that are actually involved in the creating of conditions that we see every day. And what if those spiritual beings aren't all on God's side? What if somewhere, just like human uh, beings have fallen, uh, what if there is a fall in, in, in more of the cosmic realm? What if there are other beings at work? And Paul is saying that there's this bureaucracy that's now engaged These elemental forces, these rulers and authorities that are now engaged in a spiritual battle against us. that are against everything that God is for. So if this sounds strange to you, well, hang on. Let's go to uh, Galatians chapter 4. This is another group of people that Paul is writing to. He says this in verse 4. Mandy actually read this in a different version. Earlier. He says, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Ryan, what is happening? What are you talking about? Paul is giving us an illustration, he's giving us a metaphor. And he's saying that in um, Paul's day and age, if a young boy parents die say they're wealthy and this this boy is too young to inherit everything like imagine a young 12-year-old boy in our day and age given a million dollars do you think it would be wise to give that young 12-year-old boy a million dollars when he's 12 the answer is no in case you were checking He'll just spend a million dollars on Fortnite and Cheetos. it will be trouble. So and you've probably known people who have inherited money as a young kid. And what happens is they're given it into a trust. Okay. And that trust, when they turn a certain age, they get that money. Well, this is what Paul is saying. He says, you don't want to give, you know, as, as an heir, if you're young, you don't just get all this money. And it goes on in verse 2. It says, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. We get this, right? So this heir is set. They have a a guardian or a trustee. and, And in ancient language, in Paul's language, it actually is equivalent to a combination of a nanny, a bodyguard, and a bus driver. Okay? Picture that group of people. In one person. So a trustee, a guardian, is someone that helps this young boy grow up, get to where they need to go, uh, keeps them safe, right? And, 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 and gets them to an adult age. That's what Paul's mental picture is here. He says, So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What? Is happening. Paul is saying that for time, there were, in a sense, guardians and trustees of God that were, in a sense, making sure things worked. And this is why we see in Psalm 82 that, that God actually uh, bemoans these other forces because they are doing things that are unjust. And so nothing worse. Here's the thing. Think about it. There's nothing worse than living in a culture where there is no authority at all, where it's just absolute chaos. I mean, think about it. There actually are groups um, in in, in different places in the Middle East that actually welcomed um, tribal, uh, militant tribal authorities such as ISIS and other things because they were living in chaos and they had no services. So there was like... Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And so what, what's going on here is this idea. Paul's trying to get us to think about all these different things that were really kind of, in a sense, ruling um, and, 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 and overseeing uh, the, the world at the time. So think about it. Even for us today, we have certain sectors of our culture that we ascribe a personality to. Right? So think of when I say the word the media. That has kind of a personality to it. Right? So let me just say this. If half of the people who are in the media. Quote unquote right now. Left their jobs and went into farming. (laughs) We could all just dream. But if they did that. And they filled those jobs with new people, maybe they fill those jobs with farmers. Let's just play that. Half the media leaves and becomes farmers. Farmers fill their jobs in the media. Do you think the media changes? I don't. I think it's, there's just a culture. Think about Hollywood. They've actually done... Hollywood historians have actually gone back to like the 1920s. And all the things, that, the backdoor stuff that happened at Hollywood then is the same stuff that happens now. And the same thing happens, in, 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 they would try to sell movies and get people in entertainment, all that kind of stuff, happened in the 1920s, Is happening now. So there's like this, in a sense, like a, a personality to it. Same thing with government, same thing with politics, same thing with economics. There is just something behind it that when you replace someone out of it, it continues on. Paul is saying that humans, we're not just mindless robots being controlled, but that we actually participate with things that are happening around us, these kind of cultural elemental forces that are happening around us. And so there's like something deeper, Paul is saying, that beneath the surface, and it's waiting to kind of erupt. And, 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 and humans are, in a sense, under a little bit of slavery to it. And and it gets us to this point. Look at verse four. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what Paul is saying is you had this this nanny, this guardian, uh, this trustee, that was pretty harsh and heavy and 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 manipulative and and kind of condescending and maybe gave you uh, just it it wasn't a good experience. But when the time had fully come, God actually sent Jesus and through His death, burial, and resurrection, actually adopts you into sonship, meaning you move from this one relationship that is heavy-handed under the under uh, somebody who is just doing it for a job, who is manipulative and heavy-handed, and now you are under. Uh, a father who adopts you and loves you. That's the difference. And remember, in Roman adoption, it's totally different than our adoption in some ways. Um, our adoption process is obviously big. We were talking with people the other night that are in an adoption process and all these forms and home visits, and there's so much going on there. and It's, 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 it's mind-numbing how much you have to do to adopt a child. But in Roman culture, what was interesting is to adopt a child, to adopt maybe uh, someone from slavery or whatever, what you would do is the father had to choose the adoption. The father had to be the one that said yes to the adoption. And what that meant was, in Roman culture, you could disown your own biological children, but you could not disown an adopted child. So if your son or daughter, biological son or daughter, like, you know, kind of dishonored the family name, you could just kind of cut them loose. But you couldn't do that with an adopted son or daughter. They were heirs. Instantly they became heirs. And it was all because of the fathers coming to them. And this is what Paul is saying. You once were living under this old scheme, this old rulership, and now when Jesus has come, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, you have... A father, you've been adopted into sonship, a daughtership. And he says, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So no longer is there this guardian relationship, but an intimate, tender, parental relationship. And I said the word intimate. It's a joke Mandy and I have. I hate the word, but I said it. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You are not only the child of a father, but an heir. Meaning you have this heir, meaning you have eternal life, but it doesn't mean... One day, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And um, no, it means that you actually partner with God in his kingdom right now. Everything that God is doing right now, and he's, and he's trying to bring heaven and earth reunited, we actually get to be a part of that. So the elemental spiritual forces, the, all the spiritual, uh, the, the, the principalities and the powers and all that kind of stuff, uh, many scholars have said, you know, what, you know what's behind? Like systematic racism and um, institutional like oppression and all of these things, these big things that we feel and experience in our world. God is saying, no, we get to fight against that. We get to change that. We get to work towards making that go away. And we're invited into that. We're invited to be stewards again in the garden as if the garden was under our rulership again. This is incredible. And he says in verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by nature who are not gods. Why people, this is why people fall into this idea of, uh, or idolatry of ideology, right? Like we worship an ideology. We worship a political uh, soapbox. We worship, you know, a, a way of doing things. That's why politics has become a religion today. It's literally a religion. The amount of money... This is what you tell... This is how you tell how much people worship something. When every candidate is bringing in millions and millions and millions, and we haven't even gotten to the season where they really bring in millions and millions and millions. We worship with our money. Corporations worship with their money. People worship with their money. He says... but Verse 9, he says, but now that you know God or rather are known by God how is it that you are turning your back to those weak and turning back to those weak and miserable forces do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again it's like a, that's the huge question for us like hey you've been adopted into sonship you don't have to live under that anymore why are you turning back to it why are you going back to it Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, you do not have to walk with a guardian anymore. You are sons and daughters of the king. And the temptation for us, we see it in people of Israel. They, they're out in the desert after fleeing exod- uh, in the Exodus. They're fleeing um, Egypt. And they're out in the desert and they start to complain. Well, at least we had this back there. And we do this all the time this temptation to look at the freedom of Jesus and the freedom Jesus gives and still go back. Or we do something even subtle and sinister as we <laughs> we adopt this religious sense of duty, right? We're like, oh, got to do this again because I'm supposed to do this again. I'm supposed to do this religious stuff over and over again because that's what I think God wants. Verse 10, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Oh, That's like not a letter you want to get, right? Paul's saying, why are you going back? I feel like I've wasted my time. You're doing this stuff over and over again. You're just, you're just going through these religious motions over and over and over. I feel like I've wasted my efforts on you. And then last thing, we'll land the plane. Paul also writes about all this to the people of Colossae. And in verse 15... I believe it's chapter one, two. <laughs> he says, in having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Basically, it's on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, that's true. And on the cross, God is vindicated. So there's two things happening here, foreground and background. What's interesting is this, this making a public spectacle of them. Like, think about how intense that is. You come home from like, maybe you've played intramural something, or you, you're in a little league. like they got a soccer league Sunday night, some of the people are in here. And you ask, "Man, how'd the game go?" It's not like, "Hey, we won." It was <laughs> We made a public spectacle. Of the other team so much so that we actually took away their ability to play anymore. Like how, like how intense is that, right? Like, Paul is saying something huge here. He's saying that the forces are still at work, but the crucial battle's over. Like, like the power of it, like, is over. Like it's been broken. And and this goes back to verse 8. We'll just skip forward uh, earlier to verse 8 in the letter. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. So basically what Paul's saying is, is you've got the truth of Christ and you've got these hollow and deceptive tricks. And so we tend to think of all of this when we think of spiritual warfare, we tend to think of, what in our mind's eye is is warfare? Okay, so when we think of war, for us as Americans in the West, we think of what's the biggest war you can think of? World War II. We we, we kind of go to there, right? We always go to World War II, and we think, oh, it's like if that's what spiritual warfare is like. It's like two evenly matched battles. We get the axis and the allies and we've got, it's a back and forth and you don't really know who's going to win. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that spiritual warfare is nothing like that. That the enemy has been broken, that the powers have been disarmed and really all they have now is a disinformation campaign. So, Fast forward from Second World War to now, and this is not something for us to be proud of. I'm just going to show that, say that right now. But America is the dominant military power, and we really shouldn't be proud of that. That's a whole different sermon. I'm using this as an illustration until 10 years when China is, but that's a whole different sermon as well. Now, ever since 1989, America has been the dominant world power. All countries have now is this ability to wage, in a sense, a, dif- a, a disinformation campaign against the United States. And we, they do little things and things like that. So that's why we have troll farms in Russia and troll farms in Saudi Arabia. We have people hacking your Facebook um, with memes and whatever whatever's going on. The idea is there's two great books out there, War and 140 Characters. Are, uh, it's How Social Media is Reshaping Culture and Conflict. Really good book. Um, I've just kind of read a little bit about it. And then another book called Like War. Um, but this all feeds into something that we're all experiencing right now, and it's called The Attention Economy. If you've heard about this or not, but basically there is a war for your attention. And you reason why... You need to know that is because you carry around a computer in your pocket or your purse. And there's this war for your attention all the time. And advertisers and apps and major companies, they all know this. And they are working overtime to figure out how to get your attention. And this is a huge deal. Um, there's so much out there if you want to read up on some of this, but they send bots of disinformation to you. They know what you're afraid of based on things you search for and ways you buy and your habits and your sleep schedule and all that kind of stuff. And they know the most emotionally susceptible time to give you information. That's scary. And then if you have those things inside your house that talk back to you, yeah, they know everything about you. The point is this, what Paul is saying is there's these hollow and deceptive schemes that we fall into that take people captive and they take us captive very easily. They take us, they take people captive with this idea of radical individualism, that your autonomy is the most important thing. And you need to guard your autonomy with everything you have. They take us captive with financi- the need for financial security, and that's why you'll see, as you watch the Broncos lose today over and over again, you'll see, you'll see, ad after ad for retirement. And there's usually a guy sanding a boat or doing something amazing. Whatever. Or they take us captive by image management. This idea that we need to manage our image online, and we need to create a persona, and we need to create like this this outward um, veneer that says, "Look how amazing my life is." Snap this picture. Do this. Or take people cap- captive by, based on this idea of a self-guided sexual ethic. That just see where see where it goes. And go for it. Or they take us captive with this idea of materialism. And every single time we walk into a store and things are changed around and moved around and advertised differently to get us to think that that's important for us. Have you ever clicked on an ad on Instagram? And then you start to realize that someone's looking at you all the time because that ad keeps showing up? This whole scheme are elemental forces in rebellion against God, and your enemy is is actually trying to find ways into your life. The lie is that you can have faith, follow Jesus, and a foot in autonomy or a foot in materialism or a foot into all these other things. And so what I want to do as we finish up is I just want to propose a couple things for you. One... If, okay, if the elemental forces, if these spiritual powers are in rebellion against God, they're also in rebellion and fighting against you and me who follow Jesus. And if that's the case, and they've been disarmed, but they're still working overtime, if that's the case, they want to convince us of some things. And this... This is all related to some scriptural stuff. I'm not going to get into all of it, but the first thing that these forces want to do is convince you that you are in peacetime. They want to convince you that everything's fine, that there's no war at all, to look at the world as as something you can accumulate and experience, okay, that you can drink coffee, enjoy the sunshine, get your experiences, and stop uh, basically... Uh, To think uh, like a civilian. That it's peacetime. Over and over again in the New Testament, especially with Paul's writing, he talks about fighting. He talks about warfare. He talks about battle. And so I'm going to share with you a quote for each one of these points from the book, The Screwtape Letters. And this, well, back back up. The Screwtape Letters is a fictional satire about a demon <laughs> that is training his little young demons to do the work of, of uh, enticing uh, individuals uh, to fall away from following Jesus. Okay? So, and this is written by C.S. Lewis. All right, show the quote. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. While really it is finding its place in him. Second point. The other lie is this. To keep you from your true identity. This is what Paul was trying to communicate to the Galatians. Our true identity is stewards in the world. We are made in the image of God. We are God's masterpiece. We are partnering with God. We have this, we are heirs of God. We are sons and daughters of God. And he is choosing to bring heaven and earth together. And he's asking you and I to be a part of that. And, and, and some of us, we really don't even know who we really are. You've lived decades of your life and you don't really know who you really are. What scripture is telling you is this is what you really are. This is what you really are. Here's the thing, the best way to serve our world, to serve our our world is actually to disobey the world's rules. That's the best way to serve our world, to disobey the economic inertia of our world, to disobey the individualistic pool and actually put ourselves in community, to disobey the desire to blame people for everything and actually listen to people. Here's another quote from C.S. Lewis. It's actually from... Wormwood, the character, he says, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. This idea of keeping this out of your mind, keeping this out of your mind that you are made in the image of God, that God has plans for you. The third one is this. You do not really know your city. You don't really know where you live and what's going on here. You don't really know how this city, Denver, and the suburbs are all kind of knit together and how they all act and work and what's happening. This week, I was, I'm was i a police chaplain, and I'm usually, with, I'm usually there to help officers go through difficult things, whatever. And this week, I got a call from a detective that said, Hey, there's a family that would like you to come pray for their son. He actually just hung himself, and they want you to pray for him. So I put on my my volunteer chaplain outfit (laughs) and I went to the scene and there was two detectives and there were two officers and there was the coroner and then there was victim advocates there for for the victims, um, the family, to help them through all this. And then there was the mom and the uncle and the sister. And the sister was in pain. And it was a very surreal time because they actually wanted me to physically pray for the body of their son. And so in the middle of this apartment complex, they pulled the body out on a gurney. And fortunately, they could not open the body bag. And they asked me to pray. And this group, this family, they, they wanted something. They wanted some insurance assurance that that their son would be okay, that their brother would be okay. And as I left the scene, as I left and drove home, I was reminded of the fact that everybody else driving driving down the road. I mean, this was such an intense scene, but it just all got packed up quickly, and everybody went along their way. And the pain in our city, and the mental illness, and the loneliness and the depression, and uh, um, it, it's so big, and yet you don't see it because our city is affluent, has everything, um, we have garage door openers that where we can open our garage, drive in, and then shut the door. No one knows what's going on underneath the city. Homelessness is on the rise, but here's the thing, spiritual homelessness is like huge in our city. Look at this quote. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. The fourth one, just a few, couple more. The enemy wants to lull you and I into forgetting what time it is. That this is the time of the church. That this is the time of the spirit that we operate on a different calendar than election calendars and sports calendars and school calendars, that we are actually um, here for such a time as this, that you are actually placed here for this reason. And it's not about killing time, but it's about investing in time in, in, in what the kingdom is up to. This is the quote. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. A lot of times we think, well, in the future, this will happen. and In the future, that'll happen. No, right now, this is the moment. Fifth one is this, to stop us from hearing God's song for love, of love for the world. This idea of like, when we get out of the distraction and all the voices and all the things happening around us, all the anxiety that we feel, and we just push all that away, and we're actually able to focus on what God is saying, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? What is your, what is your love and your hope and your joy? and your, what, what, are, what are you so in love with this place for? Here's the quote. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. God wants us to feel his love for this world. And the final one is this. The enemy wants to trick you that your worship is not powerful. Here's the quote. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. When we come here, this isn't meant to be just a set of religious acts. It's a reminder that the whole of our lives are to be Acts of worship. That everything we do is an act of worship. So you and I showing up here and singing, and you're like, I don't know if I like that song, that's not the point. The point is to put ourselves in a place where we can actually sing. When we sing, we give honor to God in the the right order, and it, it helps us to reorder and use the rest of our lives as worship. It's not for a feeling, it's not for an emotional experience, but it's to be here. And, and, and so it could be one of those things where it's like, how are you worshiping God with your work? How are you worshiping God by bringing people into community, bringing people into your home? How, what does it look like to be holy and pure in a world that worships all that is unholy? Like that's the ultimate act of rebellion. God has come to wash us clean. And it's not about here's the thing, it's not about what what, what's happened up until this point. It's about where you're headed. So you might just say, you know what, I just blew it this week all over the place. God is concerned about where you're headed. And so I I encourage you with one last illustration. In the 1940s, there was a theologian that talked about the people of God, the community of God, in the context of where he was living. He was living in Europe during the World War, and he noticed a train, a passenger train. And he notices as it came by, he saw people in the dining car eating their meal, looking out the window. Then he saw people in the passenger car reading their paper, smoking their pipes. And he actually took this image of people on the train, and he said, there's three groups of people on the train. You only see two, but there's really three groups of people on the train. And he equated the church to this. He said, the church is like a train. There are people in the dining car just eating food and enjoying the the view. There are people in the passenger car and they're just getting by. It's like, but what makes the train go are the people up front shoveling coal, just shoveling coal, and they're dirty and they're just in the furnace of it all. And it made me think of us as a church. The church world in America is changing. And it's something that I've been really aware of the last number of years, and our leadership team's reading about it, and we're doing a lot of work on this. Cultural Christianity, I think, personally, this is my opinion, you can can (laughs) email me later. Cultural Christianity, I believe, is an elemental force. I think it's an elemental force, and I don't think it's about what the kingdom is about. And I don't have any stats for that. I don't have any proof for that. But God is about turning people. I mean, you think of it this way. Let's just put it like a Bronco game. I know that's a bad illustration right now, and I'm way over time. There are three groups of people when you think of a Bronco game. There are people in the stands spectating. There are people outside the game, don't even know what's going on or wish they didn't know what was going on, depending. And there's what's happening on the field. What Paul's getting us to say, to see, is we're not spectators. If you follow Jesus, you're not a spectator. And you have this, you and I are just as susceptible as falling into these lulls of saying, oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, you know what? I'm not going to put myself in community because that's just a lot of work. We have this susceptibility to be pulled by all these deceptive philosophies just like anybody else. And what we need is each other. And what we need is... My, my dream is that our church would be a coal-shoveling kind of church, a place that is just... just... seeking on our hands and knees, seeking in prayer what God is up to in this world and going after that. That's what I want us to be.